Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It is a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song, and we are privileged to be a part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. Welcome to Race Matters. This is a show hosted by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Sada Khan. I'm Darren Lasagas. And what does responsibility mean to us as brown people, especially to our families and to our parents? It's something that Nardine explored in her EP Creatress a little while ago, but some time has passed and she's got a new EP out called The New Era. And we're going to be chatting with the Western Sydney queen, Nardine, to talk about her latest EP. P. That's coming up in the show later on. Yeah, we're really excited about that. But before then, you're also going to hear from the author behind one of the most buzzed about reads of the year. My name is Kylie Reed. I'm the author of Such a Fun Age. I live in Philadelphia where the book is based. I really like plot and dialogue. And in this novel, I was really exploring domestic work uh, through the eyes of Amira Tucker, a young 25-year-old African-American woman. I was exploring what it means to be family. Um, I was exploring good intentions gone awry and and what it feels like to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Oof, yeah. Another massive thing explored in such a fun age is whiteness and how Karenism can come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, big chats with Kylie Reid about race and class uh, coming your way on today's show too. Yeah, Karenism. I mean, like... <laughs> I feel like we might have talked about it a couple of times here. Maybe not enough. We can do it one more time (laughs) through the voice of someone else. It's something that I feel like we're experts in now. (laughs) Reluctantly experts. Yeah, exactly. We don't choose to be. (laughs) But first, uh, we need to talk about Sampa the Great at the Arias. I mean, she took out three, which is great and, of course, absolutely well-deserved. But her performance was the talk of the night it was was the moment it was the moment it was show-stopping and without a doubt would have gotten under the skin of some industry head honchos um let's take a listen in a country that pretends to not see black to not see its origins and its past not only did black visionaries make you see but made it known who created human history and when we win awards they toss us on eye breaks of course but is that history lost? Can't remember what you forgot. Is it free? Free. This industry for people like me. Diversity, equity in your aria boards. To my people, I say. Oh, 
I mean, the fact that she was making a direct reference um, to her acceptance speech from last year for Best Hip Hop Release for Final Form, which at last year's Arias didn't even get televised. No, it was cut. So was Kaites. So was Kaites. I mean, we understand how people of colour, black people are constantly dismissed, segregated, marginalised and, you know, having their work kind of stolen from, never given the credit to and then also when they do find themselves up in the ranks of that success, they're still kind of like uh, no, we still don't want to celebrate you enough just yet. Well, that's the thing. It's kind of a uh, hypocrisy as well because Australia in the entire career of Sampa the Great since that great mixtape came out years ago have been so quick and easy and ready to claim her as their, as our own mm. and then for them to cut her out of the arias um, but at the same time celebrate her as her own. It's like she's like, I'm not from here. I'm from Zambia. That's where I was born mm. and I'm going to bring Zambia here. And yeah, it was just the perfect moment. Yeah, and I think it's um really telling as well as to how the industry itself how they claim POC mm. artists, how they claim creatives of color. It's very much like, you know, their success is because of us. Yes. But at the same time when they want to relish in their success, they won't allow that to happen. They don't want to give the space mm-hmm. for that to happen. And it's something that we know we know about. Like it's not shocking. No, at it's not all. at all. Um but it's definitely like I think the way that she came about it this year is what we we needed. We needed to see we that. We needed to see it. Because it's like, we don't forget it when you do this. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So shout out to Sampa the Great, uh, winner of Best Hip Hop Release, Best Independent Release, and Best Female Artist for her uh, record, The Return. And shout out also to Maisha, mm. who you probably hear nearly every show that we have here at Race Matters. <laughs> this is going to be a Maisha song. Best Soul and R&B Release for Nyaringu. You are listening to Race Matters. Later on the show, we're going to be joined by Nadine. But up next, you're going to hear from Booker Prize, long-listed author, Kylie Reid about why she forefronted the intersection between race and class in her book Such a Fun Age. The lace lady travel with grace baby I can't afford to cover the course of course maybe settle that one in court cause judging by the basics y'all already comfortable stuck up in the matrix shit is basic patch credentials but understand your favorite rapper peep I go potential I'm out of shame been passive, trying to fit the circle cause I don't know how to act shit. Half of y'all was steady, insecure, don't try to backflip. Just because the seasoning and flow's already active. Only four years, fantastic. Young veteran, new classic. Now nah, I knock the walls off, fuck the whole key, we gon' hinge the whole door off. I'm still AD, never forget it. It's life after death, roll the credits. You're listening to Race Matters. I'm Darren Lasagas. And I'm Sada Khan. And this week, our producer, Tanya Ali, caught up with Kylie Reid, author of Such a Fun Age. I think that so many writers like myself, just from the very beginning, are filling up notebooks quite quickly as a child. Um, I think, you know, my pull was the storytelling. I love that feeling of, oh, gosh, what's going to happen? Okay, just one more chapter, just one more chapter. Um, And I think seeking that reading high was something I was doing from a very, very young age. But I didn't think that writing was a very, you know, stable or lucrative career at all. And and I didn't realize that I wanted to try and do it professionally until I was in my 20s. And from that point, it was submitting a lot of short stories and, and just seeing what the reaction was and receiving a lot of rejections, like probably like in the hundreds or so. And then later I decided that I didn't even know what I didn't know and I wanted to go to grad school. And so it took two years of applying and then I got into the IO Writers Workshop 
And I brought about a hundred pages of such a fun age with me into graduate school and graduate school kind of served as a finishing school for the novel. And I sold it after the first year I was there. And so I feel that, you know, my writing, you know, toolbox and, and craft and my ability to teach kind of took shape at graduate school. And now I'm trying to find my footing after this year of publication. You know, you mentioned that high, like searching for that high of reading, which you absolutely nailed um, with such a fun age. What were some of the first books that gave you that high? Okay, this is going to sound really... (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was a huge Goosebumps fan. Like R.L. Stein could do no wrong for me at all. Just that scary feeling. I loved it. Um, there is a book, I feel like, you know, I was a nanny for a long time. And so there are certain books that really stand the test of time. And so a lot of the children, I would, I would babysit to read it too. There's a book called The Monster at the End of This Book. And I remember feeling scared and loving it and wanting it over and over again. Um, and I'm trying to think, there was a book called The True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle by Avi. Uh, he did those children's historical fiction books. And I remember feeling really thrilled by that one as well. It's about a girl who gets on the wrong ship. She gets on a ship full of pirates instead of the ship home. And I was very into it. (laughs) Love that. Um, Let's get into such a fun age. Do you remember what sparked the initial idea for the novel? Truly, my initial idea was to do what so many, you know, movies and, and stories do, which is have a very precarious and awkward relationship between three people. I think that three is such a magical number in stories and fairy tales for a number of reasons, but when it comes to alliances shifting, it does something really visceral to a reader. And I wanted that, that feeling from my readers as well. And so initially I thought, okay, I I want to have a story about a young woman, her new boyfriend and her boss. I think that that could be really interesting. And then out of that, learning more about these characters came this relationship between this young black woman, this white mother that she babysits for and the white child that she's kind of falling in love with, um, which in many ways is a very old story. But I think what makes it new is the the presence of technology and a cell phone and what has become very common, you know, instances of, of racial bias caught on camera. And so initially it started out as, okay, I just want to make this as awkward as I can (laughs) and later it got into much, much deeper themes. The relationship between race and class is obviously paramount in the novel. Uh, What made you want to explore these intricacies kind of to the extent that you do? I, you know, as far as the things that I want to read and the things that I'm interested in, I think that separating race from class is, is a bit of a disservice to, to, you know, how race and class affect people in their everyday lives. I, in my writing, really like to take huge socioeconomic issues and whittle them down to tiny, tiny parts that almost seem petty, but are really representative of everyday life. And so there's an instant, you know, where Amira is racially profiled in a grocery store. And while it doesn't end in violence, I do think that there's a trauma there. I think that it sticks with you in a way that many Black women have come to know very well, where they think about that moment and how they could have done something better. Um, which I think is the trick of, of racism and capital, making it seem like this is your fault when, when really it's, you know, deep embedded into the systems that we're living in. And so I wanted to hit these moments in a really low to the ground domestic way, because I think that that's how racism shows up so often. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I felt like the book 
you know, it is a, a totally compulsive read, but it's also really heavy. Like there were moments, I remember finishing that first chapter and I had a little cry because it like it felt really real. And I feel like what you do in the book is pinpoint so many aspects of racism that I've literally never seen on paper kind of just in this very, very um, realistic way. Um, I'm interested to know how you felt throughout the writing process. Were, were there times that it was tough or grueling kind of diving so deep into these layers of racism and classism and microaggressions? Mm. I, I get a little bit clinical when I'm writing. And so I think that the plot of the story was a bigger challenge, but I think that my biggest issue in terms of that was, you know, some people ask me like, do you write for a white audience? Do you write for a black audience? And I definitely don't have that in my mind when I'm writing, but with this specific novel, I knew that I wanted to answer correctly to black domestic care workers. And I wanted to make sure that I was really depicting what it's like to work in somebody else's house and, you know, always get paid in cash and be nervous about your health care. I wanted to really depict those things with care and accuracy because it's such a specific worry and a specific, you know, type of lifestyle that I really didn't want to get wrong. And so I would say that um, I got pretty obsessed with making sure that, that Amira's lifestyle was accurate to so many other women. Totally. The novel came out right at the end of last year, um, but reading it a couple of months ago, I felt like, you know, it it felt very now. Um, it's obviously anchored in 2015, which is when you started writing it in a pre-Trump America. If we zoom out to the big picture, what do you think has changed since you began to write this book? Is there anything you would have done differently? Oh, man. You know, it's so funny because you you know, the book process is so long and, and you write this novel and then you move on, you know, you're writing other things, but the novel stays the same, but you as an artist are changing and hopefully growing as well. So there's nothing that I would have changed because I really want to honor where I was at the time. This is definitely a product of, of me, you know, working many jobs at the same time and going to grad school and getting my feet as a writer. And, and I'm very, very proud of this novel. Um, but it's funny because I think where I was writing it is very, you know, reminiscent of the times, but that's not to say so much that I feel that this is a more timely story now than it was in the 1950s when most black women were domestic care workers. Um, I think that I was really inspired by technology and, and how that shapes people's relationship to racism when they see it through another fourth wall. Um, but I don't know if I would say, you know, I could write the story better now with hindsight, I think I would write a different story now. I think many artists are like that when they're done. <laughs> they're pretty much done. Yeah, fully. Um, I guess, obviously, reckoning um, with race has come to the forefront for a lot of white people this year. Uh, have you found a difference in reception to the book between white audiences and your readers of colour? 100%. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, which was, I was so, so lucky to get to go on tour um, in the States and in the UK a little bit in January and February before everything shut down. And that was, you know, one of my favorite parts is often, you know, white women coming up to me and saying, this was really, really hard for me to read. I'm glad I did, but it was hard for me. And then sometimes black women would come to me and say, I need to give this book to this woman named Maureen in my office because she needs to read it because it is her. And I, I love both of those reactions. Uh, but I will say, you know, unfortunately, something that I've seen happen to, to many Black artists is that 
when tragedies like happen, like this year, there were many, and when people are killed in cold blood on a cell phone, um, I think many people panic and say, you know, what can I do? Okay, I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy black art. And that's, I understand the inclination to do that. But I think that what happens often is then they read the book saying, okay, I need to learn. I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm learning. And that's just not how to approach art. You know, when I go to a museum, I'm like, okay, what is this paint picture teaching me? You know, what am I going to take away from this? It's just about enjoying the art, you know, and when I write, I'm not a teacher, I'm a storyteller. And so on one end, I do think that some of my favorite novels do teach me things, but I, I hate polemics and I hate when a novel is preaching at me. And so I do hope that people who pick up the novel because they feel lost with what else to do also remember this is a story and to just try and enjoy it first. Kylie Reid, we've come to uh, our final question, and this is a question that we ask every single one of our guests who come through on Race Matters. When did you realize there was power in your race? Oh, oh man, what a great question. Okay, okay, I think I'm gonna have I think I'm gonna have a, a strange answer, but but just bear with me. <laughs> I think that's something that I've I've become interested in this year and and in writing for such a fun age is the difference between wealth and income. And I think in studying how money works and how capital works and just how, you know, people work on, you know, a, a basic human, you know, behavior level, I think it's, as the saying goes, um, skin folk is not always kin folk. And so in realizing the power that black elite can have can also, you know, dip into white supremacy at times. I think seeing the power of, of black money and how it can be used for wrong power makes me realize how powerful a race can be. And also it, it sounds bleak, but seeing things like that makes me want to do better. And it makes me want to work for working class people and work for people like Amira to make sure that she can go to the doctor and get health insurance and, and put power into the right places. Oh, yeah, that's so real and makes me think of the character of Tamara in the book who, like, I remember gasping towards the end at some of the things that she was saying. I was like, whoa, like, you kind of want her to be Amira's ally and she's just absolutely not. Yes, that was another book uh, tour highlight when so many Black women would say to me, oh, my God, this is my mom's friend, Denise. I hate her so much. (laughs) I think a lot of black women recognize her, you know, and, and that kind of perspective can also be harmful as well. And so in my literature, I want to portray all of those types of black people because they come in multitudes. But in my life, I I want to see that power and recognize it and hopefully turn it into the right places. Absolutely. Kylie Reid, thank you so much for joining us on Race Matters. Thank you for having me. Yeah, that's Kylie Reid, author of Booker Prize long-listed novel Such a Fun Age on Race Matters. Sarah, I feel like you were reacting to a lot of the stuff she was saying. I mean, I was too. I mean, that last question, we asked that question to all of our guests. When did you realise there was power in your race? And what she took from that question, how she answered it, is something that I've never heard before and something that is just so nuanced and so incredibly relevant. I mean, talking about the black elite and how recognizing the black elite and their ability to choose proximity to whiteness as a result of their financial reach 
and witnessing that and realizing you don't want to be that. So you realize the power in your race was to stay connected to your community and stay connected to your grassroots and find your power in that threshold, mm. in that space. I mean, like, wow. Because I've been wanting to have this conversation for so long about the black elite and how they consistently compromise our community but speak on behalf of our community. I had a huge conversation with Alicia Johnson. We've had Alicia Johnson mm-hmm. on the show before. And I was on, she does um just a brief plug of her, like go and look at her Instagram on the daily because she's always doing big Instagram live conversations in conversation with um type of uh, content. And I did one with her over NADOC week and a big chunk of our chat was around the black elite and how problematic this um section of our communities are, especially because white people love the black elite because mm. they do for them the work that they won't, they can't do in terms of damaging, further damaging our communities. And it's been happening for generations. It's just taken, like, it's just assumed different roles and different faces yeah. every single time. It looks different in the system of capitalism, exactly, too. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, that whole conversation there was just... Well, we, me and Darren were reacting back and forth oh, the yeah. whole time. When yeah. you said skin folk is not kin folk, like, that is... <laughs> the core of it really i've been hearing a lot of that this year as Mm. well as a result of um what's transpired from june when Mm. black lives matters um really erupted globally and a lot of the conversations on twitter has been around that well a lot not a lot of it but a good portion like you know a lot of comments being made has been you know like skin folk is not kin folk like don't get it twisted Mm -hmm. um not everyone is meant to be your ally even in your own community yeah you know i'm from the west ocb we rolling with the best use the lemon all the way to the zest yeah we keep it juicy 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 It's nominated for an FBI Smack Award for Song of the Year. Nardine and Auxcord, singer-songwriter for Mount Jordan, absolutely no stranger to the playlists here at FBI 94.5. She makes what she calls post-hop. Uh, there's R&B, there's rap, there's pop. All of it uh, is good. And we have Nardine in the studio with us to talk about what it means to make music today in so-called Australia. Uh, Nardine, thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You're so welcome. Love um, FBI. Oh, and we love you. Yes. Hence the Smack Award nomination. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's super exciting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I want to wind the clock back a bit. Um, you always hear about us starting music early in their lives, but yeah. I know that you started when you were about 21, right? Yeah. How much clearer do you feel now uh, about the vision of your music than you did back then? In a lot of ways, actually, kind of annoyingly ironically I feel less clear (laughs) like um I was talking to uh my singing teacher today and we were talking about kind of like the path of mastery and it's like the more you know the more you realize how much you don't know so when I first started I had this kind of um blissful ignorance I would say and I was just like yeah I'm gonna like I'm just gonna rap and write songs and I'm gonna do this and do that and I'm going to be really famous and I was just doing it, you know. Mm. Like little did I know I couldn't even, I could barely even sing, you know. Um, but I had that confidence so I like, <laughs> so I did it. Anyway, okay. yeah. Um, and now I'm more like, I'm going deeper, you know. I'm trying to think because I understand more about like sound and forming a, I mean, <clears throat> you don't have to be consistent, you know, but you do like want to make something that like, people know like oh that's a Nardine song or even like people know um 
like even to have even like my thing could be like I switch up switch it up every song you know maybe that's my thing um but I'm trying to go deeper with it and just like figure what I want to say as well Mm. and really like not just make songs for the fuck of it you Mm. know which is also fine. Sorry yeah. for swearing. Can no, I swear? all good. Whoops. Um, <laughs> language warning language on warning, this whole interview. Whole chat, yeah. The whole chat. The whole chat. Turn it down if you if you need to. Um, I read that that was about the the same time that you saw a woman rapping on stage for the first time in person. Who, yeah. who was that? Her name's Mira. Oh, Mira. You know Mira? Mira! I love yeah. Mira. Yeah, I yeah. love her. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was like, I saw her rap and she was just dope, man. Like, she was like B-girling on stage and stuff, like doing the, sh- the shuffle. And I was just like, that is just what I need to do with my life. Yeah. That's just facts, you know? <laughs> Did you connect with her after that? Yeah, it was like embarrassing, actually. <laughs> again, again, that like, you know, ignorant confidence where I just, I sent her this like crazy long Facebook message where I was like, oh my God, like you were so amazing. I've just started writing. Here are some of the things I've been writing. Sent her three poems in one message. Oh, like, that's just, so like, sweet. It was so awkward. And like, she was so graceful and lovely about it. We had a Skype call. <gasps> Um, Skype back in those oh, yeah. days. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, wait, what? Not Zoom. Yeah, it was Skype Damn. back in those days. Um, and we had a Skype call, and she was like, "If you wanna, um, if you wanna be a rapper, write poems and perform them at spoken word nights. Like, yeah. write spoken word and go to spoken word because it'll teach you to mean what you say, and say it. You know, um, yeah. So shout out Mira. That's the reason. Yeah, Thank I think you. that's some great advice there. Saying, you know, like, go into this space because it'll teach you how to, you know, mean what you say. I mean, not enough have I been given... I've never been given, like, deadly advice like that that's been super productive. (laughs) It was really... (laughs) Like, just go into this space just so you can... It's always, like, just so you can network with someone actually saying to you, like, no, because this is how it will, like, specifically inform your craft. Yeah, and it's really, like, it's been quite a... Like, it's been a very foundational piece, the spoken word poetry. Like, yeah. most shows these days, I'll do at least one poem, you yeah. know? And most of what I write, I I like to write things um, so that they can be performed without music as well, you know? Yeah, and you always draw on your Egyptian roots as well and singing in Arabic particularly and using Arabic scales. How has that changed your relationship with that side of your music? Well, it's interesting, you know... Um, I think that this music has allowed me more than anything else in my life to connect with my culture and to be proud of it. Like growing up, um, you know, like Orgscord talks about, you grow up kind of in between two worlds. You grow up like in the house, it's Egypt, (laughs) Egyptian values and stuff. And Egypt as well, like 30, 40 years ago, because my parents moved here 40 years ago and like they took the old Egypt and moved it to Australia. But Egypt has progressed (laughs) Anyway, that's like a whole other conversation. Um, But you grow up with like Egypt in the house and then you go to school and it's like Australia or you step outside the door and it's Australia, right? And you have this kind of merging of cultures. And I always felt really repressed in my culture in the house because I could tell it was so different to like the kind of free, freer, I'm doing air quotation marks for everyone listening at home kind of freer Western culture, right? So I felt really repressed at home. So I rejected a lot of the um, Egyptian values. And then when I started making music, I was like, because we listened to Arabic music growing up. Mm. And I was like, and then I started to learn about music. So I started to listen to Arabic music in that way. And then I was like, maybe I could like put this, like maybe I could blend them together, you know? And then through that, 
I've started to realize like, damn, like this culture is pretty cool, fam. <laughs> yeah. What were your parents' reaction to you quitting uh, uni and starting music? <laughs> uh, do you want the, the like, let's not um, call the cops version? No. Oh, <laughs> no, no, it wasn't that extreme. It wasn't that extreme. Okay. <laughs> that was just a funny joke. It wasn't that extreme. But it was definitely like my dad... Like, they've come around a lot, but my dad still to this day asks me when I'm going to get a normal job. Mm. And I'm just like, listen, bro, never. <laughs> like, it's just I'm not- going to call my dad, bro, and see how <laughs> that works out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just like, like, they've come around a lot. And my mom as well, especially. Um, so I've been living with my parents this past year. Um and we've gotten like much closer and mm. my mom is like um it's really sweet like she's really supportive actually oh, it was really cute last night um or a couple of nights ago i have this show coming up on sunday and i was feeling like stressed about it and my, i'm walking around the house like just in a bad mood and mom's like what's wrong you're in a bad mood you're stressed is it the show and i'm like yeah i'm stressed she's like why i'm like oh you know i feel like i can't sing blah 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 just like all this artist stuff and mm. she's like in arabic she said it to me but like she was like no you have to be confident you're nadine anything you put your mind to you always achieve it that and i was like that's so funny. I feel seen. Oh. <laughs> like, just, so now they're coming around, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I yeah. just had to, like, get the bag first. And, yeah. Then, like, yeah. and, then, they, and then they accept it. Yeah. Do they watch you play live? They haven't yet, oh, okay. which is so sad. But recently I did Parramatta Lanes online and they watched the performance, which was filmed. Um, it was, like, pre-recorded and yeah. then... Um, streamed and so they watched that and my mom really loved it it was really cute yeah yeah Yeah. um you mentioned before that you had listened to arabic music growing up um but um how about now like what 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 are you looking to for inspiration for that side of your songwriting when you're writing in arabic well okay so really lately it's really funny for the past like month or so i've literally been listening to like arabic music and classical music that's it it's really weird i don't know why but the classical. I was talking to my friend Paisley the other day, and just I just don't like drums at the moment. Okay. <laughs> and neither does he. So classical music in the car. I'm like, I love this. Um, but in terms, so I want to move to Egypt next year for like three or four months. Um, I'll probably end up staying longer if I'm honest. But I want to learn to sing Arabic properly and to like. Because like a whole different world, the music world. Like yeah. they'll do like they'll have like one person in the front with like a fucking orchestra behind them. Um, and it's it's incredible. It's incredible to watch. And so I'd love to be able to make music like that. Um, so yeah, I have been listening to a lot of Arabic music. And I guess on this song, like there's the Arabic rap, mm. but I want to learn to sing in mm. Arabic, like properly, you know? And I guess as well with writing these lyrics and trying to, you know, you have your, you know, natural what you your usual way of doing it and now adapting arabic mm. into your songwriting as well like it's so many different crafts and mediums coming together so how do you approach writing lyrics in english now as opposed to writing in arabic like does it how do the, do they like kind of the arabic kind of make the english better <laughs> well it's funny like with the english i feel like i'm a lot more careful or i really try a lot harder to craft it whereas with arabic um and almost like as well because yeah, 
Yeah, English more careful. And then with the Arabic, because I know that not many people are going to understand it, I kind of just like am a lot more free with it. And I'm just mm. like, yeah, whatever. Like, just write this, write that. And I just say shit. And there's even like, um, so anyone who listens to the verse in Arabic and understands Arabic, like they'll hear like there's certain places where um, I can't think of an example right now, but where I'll like, Sometimes I do this thing where it's like half Arabic, half English, where I'll be like, um, like I'll put an ing, like an ing on the end of an Arabic word, you know, <laughs> just because like that's what I, co- I don't know the Ar- proper Arabic way to mm. say it. So I just blend the two. But yeah. And then even with the Arabic verse as well, sometimes when I'm trying to find rhymes, I'll be like in my studio and then I'll like go in my parents' house like go in the house and I'll be like dad what rhymes with this yeah. <laughs> and I'll get him to give me a list of words because yeah. I don't have a huge vocab you know it's just like you're walking thesaurus like yeah Arabic totally thesaurus. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and we had read that your dad does write um poetry in Arabic too do you ever turn to his work that's really cute where did you read that I don't remember telling anyone that you all have <laughs> done your research we read that yeah cute. we actually rang him Oh. No, we didn't do that. Oh, brave. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, hey, bro. <laughs> I would never. Um, he, yeah, he, he writes like, he's always been like a poet and a, like, a, he just loves language, you know. he His job actually in Egypt was like, he had a PhD in political science and he worked in the government and he was like, he worked in the treasury. So he was actually like a really economist, like that sort of world. Um, but he's always been like he always really loves language and he makes like puns like like in Arabic he makes like dad jokes which I never realized until recently until the dad jokes became like a trending kind of meme and then I he did it and I was like oh my god you're making puns but they're in <laughs> Arabic and I just didn't realize that they were puns because they were Arabic. Yeah. <laughs> um, Yes, yeah, so that's been... really wholesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's that's cute. Sweet. Um, I want to backtrack a bit to your Creatress EP, um, which you said was a meditation on responsibility, you know, in particular to your parents. And all of us here in this room, we all got brown parents and we know <laughs> how that word responsibility means something different to us than our white friends. How, I mean, what was your upbringing like? Um, just straight up. Well, I think... Um... I think actually, like maybe just to clarify, when I say responsibility, about mm. I actually mean personal, mm, okay, and like me taking responsibility for what I'm creating in the world, you know. Um, but definitely, responsibility does mean a different thing um, to us, and in a way, it tight like it's still in that EP as well. It still ties into what you're asking about because definitely, like me making that EP was like telling the story of realizing, like, oh. I can do what I want with my life and with my time and I don't have to, um, you know, please you. I don't have to go to church every Sunday and then get a job and get married and hopefully go to heaven when I die. Like, I don't have to do that, you yeah. know. I can be a rapper. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm having this epiphany right now, actually. You should have heard me going off to our EP, Tanya, when I came into the studio today. And it was directly from what you've just explained. Oh, wow. <laughs> we have these reckonings. Like, it's, a, it's such a, like, um, collective reckoning we all have. Mm. Yeah, it's it, and it was really amazing when I realised it, you know, but I was fully like, oh, like, you don't have to be unhappy for the rest of your life? Mm. Lit! <laughs> <laughs> 
I can make my own active choices. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. You are listening to Race Matters with Darren Lasagas and Sada Khan. We're joined in the studio by singer-songwriter Nardine ahead of her Oxford Art Factory show tomorrow night and fresh from a Smack Award nomination for Song of the Year for Oxcord. Uh, the new era, the new EP. In what ways does this EP mark a new era for Nardine? Oh, I mean, I meant it as a mark for a new era for the world. Okay. Which, you know, um, it's like I didn't realise how true that was going to (laughs) be when it came out. Um, So for me, the idea for the new era was it feels like um, a lot of the world has this kind of Christian model of like ascension and lightness and White, even like in terms of like white and dark, like white and black. And like, it's like very much like cli- even like capitalism, it's like climb to the top, get to the top. We're all doing the up thing. And it feels very much like a enlightenment, like Christian kind of model placed on top of everything. Um, and even like, in t- I, I see, cause you can kind of see the world in like, uh, kind of a sp- on the spectrum of the binary, right? So you have like, yeah, on one side, like white and light and like get to the top and capitalism. And then on the other side, you have like darkness and um, same like yin and yang, right? Like darkness and internal and like um, going deep. And you kind of have like the the thoughts that you don't really want to admit to yourself. And you have like the times where you just want to lie in bed and do nothing. Like I see kind of that that side. So to me, the new era feels like a time where... um, all of it is okay and it comes into balance, you know? I, you see, we see it now with, like, the gender spectrum, like, where everything's, like, you know, everyone's more, like, in the middle. Mm. You, not everyone, you know, but it's, like, it's happening where... And I feel like the middle path is where... It's almost like where stability and steadiness is, you know? So, to me, the new era very much felt... And it was a new era for me as well, of course, like, of, like, me kind of abandoning that old idea of like get to the top and all that sort of stuff and just like coming back to like accepting my own self all of the bits of myself um not labeling it good or bad you know and um also being from western sydney as well i mean western sydney has bred so many incredible creatives of color i mean the stories and talent that manifest from that space is overflowing Mm. how did uh western sydney inform your craft from when you began to where you are now yeah I mean like now it feels like there's like a um like a tsunami behind me you know (laughs) and like we're at the front of like a tsunami of just like energy and force and community and I get I get goosebumps thinking about it like the sense of community and the sense of pride that we have right now it feels so like it's exciting you know um and then growing up in the West was just like, for me, and this is what I love about it as well, it's like everybody had different experiences, you know, and the the West that you see on the news, right, or like, you know, the experience of, say, 1-4, what 1-4 is rapping about, like that's totally a different experience to what I had growing up in the West, which is like Orcs Court. Like for me, my experience of growing up in the West was like multiculturalism, um, family, community, going to church a lot. Like I, yeah, like just seeing, you know, different colored people at school like that was that was my experience of the west you know and like my strict little family wouldn't let me go out at night Mm -hmm. so it's not like I was out you know doing crazy shit so that was my experience of the west and all like those things that's now raised me and for me it just feels like community 
that's the thing that's really important to me now. Yeah. How's the music community specifically changed in your eyes over the past maybe year or two? In Western Sydney? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's like Yeah, it, it's so it's it's hard to capture it in words, but mm. what it f- feels like maybe is like for a, a long time like the pot has been coming to the boil and now it's like overflowing. You know, there's like spaces popping up. There's all these incredible artists um like Elfresh was telling me last year when he went to Big Sound, like 70 or 80% of the hip hop and R&B acts were from Western Sydney. And it's like, damn straight they were. Mm. Like, you know, um, it just feels like it's, yeah, bubbling, like, yeah, spaces and energy and support and community and just like dope music as well. Like just the quality is next level. Yeah, it's really exciting because I look at Western Sydney and I just see so many different identities and diasporas just fully having this, like, reclamation of it all Yeah, and just, like, coming into their power of it all, which, I mean, is super exciting and also something that is going to just, like, breed out even more generations of excellence. Because the, the more you see it, the more... Like, I didn't see no Egyptian women rapping and singing when Mm. I was growing up, you know, but now it's like, you know, there might be some women that see me doing it or, you know, non-women as well, like whoever, Mm. there might be some people that see me doing it and then now they can do it as well. And like for me as well, what's really important is like um, actually creating uh, like industry around it. So not just like me just doing my shit, getting famous and like, hell yeah I've done it's like no like let's build a venue in Western Sydney mm. like let's get studios out there let's get the techs in those studios let's, let's get, get the, the producers yeah. the venue bookers the managers everything. like yep. everyone you know like let's get that happening um, and build a solid foundation because what we're doing now we're doing it like you know like we're building houses from straw and they're great houses mm. <laughs> you know but it's like um and there's like, you know, places like Campbelltown Arts Centre doing amazing things. Like they've got the conscious program there, you know, places like that that are helping us with the industry. But that's something that's really important to me now as well. Yeah. You're listening to Race Matters. We've been speaking with Nadine about her music. And Nadine, we asked this question to all of our guests. And that is, when did you realise there was power in your race? Ooh. Hmm. I think that. I've always known, like, I maybe on like a conceptual level, I've I've always associated like Egypt with ancient Egypt, you know, and you kind of think of that grand civilization, um, and for for me that always felt powerful, but it felt kind of powerful in a superficial way, like just on like a conceptual level, but maybe the embodied sense of power from my race um, came. Yeah, when I realized that generosity and kindness is something that's really important to our culture. Um, <laughs> my friend makes this joke. This is nothing against white people. I love white people. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I really do. And I try and not, like, I try and be compassionate and I try, like, I'm not trying to, like, dig the line in the sand, dig a line, you know, dig any lines in the sand. That's not what I'm about. But for me, my friend made this joke one time. It was so funny. <laughs> And it's so true because like when when we were kids, like if our friends came over to our house at school, they would be like, um, like my mum would force my friends to eat. But then when you go to your white friend's house, it's like their mum is like, um, 
Oh, I would is walk home friend, hungry. Yeah, well, it's I like, would go home it's hungry. like, is your friend staying? Do we need to thaw an extra sausage? <laughs> 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 Which is like, that's just, and it's just like this kind of, we show love differently. Yeah. So that to me is like when, that's when I realize, like, there's a real power in generosity yeah. and like community. Yeah. That is all for Race Matters this week. I'm Darren Lasagas. And I'm Sada Khan. Big thank you to our guests on the show today, Nadine and Kylie Reed. And thank you for listening. You can hear all episodes of Race Matters over at fbiradio.com forward slash race matters or wherever you get your podcasts. Race matters. 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 Race matters.